Michael, hi, how are you? Oh, Hava, I'm doing good. I'm at my friend's house. He is with child. Well, there's a kid running around. That's <laughs> so I have to be uh, sparing with my words, but I'm, I'm having a good time. It's very relaxing. Did you travel a long way to go there, or does this friend live close? No, nah, they live an hour away in Central Mass. Oh, okay. So. That's not that far. No, no, no. The, the kid calls me Uncle Michael. Oh, I know. That's so sweet. And now the other kid who's like still in the baby territory is like, Michael, Michael. Oh my gosh. And that's very nice. That's so sweet. <sighs> yeah, I, we just took them uh, to a soccer class. Oh. Which is like a thing that you can do, like just to burn time with kids. You just take mm-hmm. them to these giant... Soccer emporiums? Yeah, there's like soccer emporiums. It's like 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools of fake turf grass divided wow. amongst various age groups. That sounds very stressful. It's actually relaxing in comparison to the other things that seem to go along with parenting. Yeah, I guess I was thinking it sounds like a stressful place to work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's like super cool. The kids are just doing their thing and, you know, like teenagers teaching them how to kick a soccer ball. And you're just sitting there on your phone, like not having to worry about them hurting themselves. Yeah, it's pretty great. Nice. But what do I know? I'm not a parent. But you're an uncle, apparently. I'm a weird... I'm... A uncle. Yeah, yeah. Um, How are you, Hava? Baruch Hashem, I'm well. It's a cold spring day. Last time we recorded, it was a beautiful spring day. Today, it's more like one of those semi-frigid spring days. I feel a little wonky because I started a new ADHD medication recently, and it's getting in there, getting in the bod, messing with stuff. But I think I'm adjusting okay so far. One of my best friends in the world had a birthday party last night. And I haven't been to a party in so long. It wasn't like a huge, it was just like 10 people or so, but it was still like so cute. We got pizza. We played board games. We played this card game called The Great Dalmudi. It's sort of like Go Fish or Old Maid, but it's actually made by the people who make D&D. So it has like a whole fantasy component to it. And also you're encouraged to wear costumes as a part of it. So there were, we were wearing like little birthday crowns and stuff. It was oh, really cute. All right. It was adorable. Yeah, so I'm good. I'm good. I'm in a I'm in a very peaceful vibe. Oh, well, that's good. I'm glad you're feeling peaceful. We've had a bit of a hectic week because we got the opportunity to interview Marianne Williamson. It all kind of happened very suddenly, and yeah, it was wild. It's true, and that's what you're going to listen to here today. You know, as a podcast, we're not here to tell you how to feel about Marianne's campaign or policies. We wanted to conduct this interview to hear and learn about how she sees the interaction of politics and spirituality, and that's what we aimed to do. And we trust you as our wise and wonderful listeners to draw your own conclusions. So without any further Michigas from us, here is our interview with the scintillating Marion Williamson. Marianne Williamson is a best-selling author, political activist, and spiritual thought leader. For over three decades, she has been a leader in spiritual and religiously progressive circles. She is the author of 15 books, four of which have been number one New York Times bestsellers. 
Williamson founded Project Angel Food, a nonprofit organization that has delivered more than 14 million meals to ill and dying homebound patients since 1989. The group was created to help people suffering from the ravages of HIV-AIDS. She has also worked throughout her career on poverty, anti-hunger, and racial reconciliation issues. In 2004, she co-founded the Peace Alliance and supports the creation of a U.S. Department of Peace. Williamson ran for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. Marianne Williamson knows firsthand how our current system is failing millions of Americans. She's had a 40-year career facilitating personal and systems transformation and has inspired millions of us to overcome in spite of the system. That's why Marianne is fighting for an America where we can celebrate the places where we have been right and can admit to the places where we have been wrong. And America 2.0. This is not the time for politics as usual. For politics as usual has failed us. And to lead us at this time of peril, the best man for the job is a woman. Marianne, hi, how are you? Fine. I was laughing. That was an interesting copy you have there. Um, <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, it was a, uh, quite extensive, quite a quite a list of accomplishments. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I want to start off by asking you, you're really well known for the way in which you fuse and mix spirituality and politics. And I wanted to start off by asking, what was your experience of Judaism and Jewishness like growing up? And, and what has it been like as an adult? I grew up in a conservative Jewish home, not conservative politically, mm -hmm. but conservative Judaism, Beth Yashirin in Houston. I was not bat mitzvahed. I was confirmed. My brother was bar mitzvahed. My daughter was bat mitzvahed. I would say a very kind of typical Jewish home. Yeah. And uh, it has always just been part of my identity. When I started my career lecturing on a set of books called The Course in Miracles, which is a, it's not a religion, it's a psychological mind training in the relinquishment of a thought system based on fear and the acceptance instead of a thought system based on love. But it does use traditional Christian language, but in very psychotherapeutically oriented ways. So when I first began my career, I would have rabbis say to me, with some level of annoyance, you could have found it here. <laughs> <clears throat> and I would often say, nobody taught me. Mm -hmm. Because by that time in my life, I was aware that there are the mystical traditions inside all great religious teachings, including Judaism, which of course is what the Kabbalah is. But I, when I was born, you know, when you look at the Jews who came over from Europe <clears throat> during the Holocaust and before the Holocaust, the same percentage of teachers, scientists, doctors, business people came. The great rabbis didn't come. There was a term in Yiddish, God's not in America. I mean, how could a rabbi flee? Mm -hmm. So I grew up at a time, you know, when you look at the great, you know, the Jewish renewal movement, you look at the, you know, the extraordinary Jewish teachings. Now, even my own daughter, if I had received the Jewish education when I was growing up that my daughter received, I probably would have become a rabbi. But I was, you know, I went to Sunday school, but it was you know, I was never taught the mystical food of my own religion. Now, I did come to understand historically that there was a gap. You know, I was born in 1952. So I did come to understand that historically I was, I dropped into the, to the gap 
that it took before the really meaty, great rabbinical teachings were um, taught once more. Now, having said that, you know, the rabbi and the three major rabbis in Houston at that time, there was Malev, there was Rabbi Khan, Rabbi Malev, and Rabbi Shachtel. Even today, I remember those names. They were mm-hmm. major figures. They were major pillars. So being a Jew, being part of a Jewish community was important, but it didn't feed me mystically. It didn't feed me spiritually in the way that I would simply find elsewhere. But nothing in The Course in Miracles ever called me to leave my religion or anything like that. The Course in Miracles talks about um, that those who are called to God come from all religions and no religion. I'm from an immigrant Jewish background. I have grappled with, and I think a lot of us have grappled with, secular ideas, other religious ideas. It's just in the air around us, and there's a lot of anxiety around assimilation. Maybe some of that anxiety in some ways is lifting around incorporating different spiritual practices. There's a lot of Jews who are into Buddhism now. They're sometimes called Jewboos. But when you were figuring out your own ideas about the metaphysics of how we should be behaving and treating each other, that was in a time where, I don't know, I imagine there was a lot more pressure to not do that kind of exploration. Almost the opposite. You know, the counterculture of the 1960s, I mean, it was an explosion of spiritual and political and sexual and cultural. It was a whole countercultural revolution. We read Ram Dass and Alan Watts in the morning and went to anti-war protests in the afternoon. You know, everybody was reading Seth books. Everybody was reading. So, no, there was, there was a lot. It seems to me there was even more exploration. I never saw, it never, it, I, my Judaism feels racial to me. You know, you're born a Jew, you die a Jew. A Jew who is who I am. But the more expanded spiritual studies that I were doing, I didn't even think at the time Judaism isn't giving it to me. Judaism has given me a lot. Judaism taught me to try to be a good person and that God expected that of me. <laughs> to kun olam. Mm -hmm. Uh, respect and wonder and awe. I'm very grateful for what Judaism taught me. And I also realize that even the metaphysical studies that I have uh, dedicated my life to, there are universal spiritual themes. It's just one truth told in many different ways. And I realized that if I if I had been taught Kabbalistic teachings, for instance, earlier, then I probably would have been a Kabbalistic rabbi. So it's interesting that I wasn't because I don't think that was sort of my destiny. But you know, even then, I remember having dinner with a with the head rabbi of Holland many years ago, back probably in the nineties, and saying that he had gone to visit a friend of his who is was an Indian guru, and he went to his. He said, "Come see my." Um, come, come to my ashram in India and visit. He said, I went there, I looked around, it was a bunch of Jews sitting there. What we, and he said, that what has happened that we have lost our own generation? And, and Judaism has to answer to that and did answer to that. And like I said, and has in many ways answered to that with the, you know, the greater interest in the Kabbalah and Jewish renewal. But there was a period of time. And even then, that's what they were called, Jews. But Judaism, you know, you know this, you're Jews. Jews, there's no Vatican telling you what you can or cannot do. <laughs> I mean, you know, if anything, I think at the very Talmudic tradition, go think for yourself, read books and work it out with God. Right. Absolutely. It sounds like you would have maybe done really well if you had been born a man in the 1700s into a Hasidic rabbinic dynasty. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Maybe I was. I notice in recordings where I've heard you speak, you 
use a lot of themes that feel like they really echo how Judaism approaches ethics. I was just watching an appearance you did where you quoted the famous verse from Deuteronomy, justice, justice, you shall pursue, tzedek, 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 Yeah, I was just thinking about how, as I have grown up to become my own Jew in this day and age, I feel like I've been sort of nurtured and grown in this sort of new milieu of leftist Judaism that I think a lot of people my age and younger are a big part of where the political values of the left and the spiritual values of Judaism are really coming together and being seen to be sort of inextricably linked. It's always felt clear to me that they are. Do you feel like seeing the linkage between how Judaism approaches ethics and what you wanted to do politically, was that a link that was clear to you? Or did your motivation for your morality-based political action come from somewhere else? Once again, I believe in universal spiritual themes. To me, they're at the heart of all the great teachings. So I, I do believe that progressive values are inextricably linked with spiritual values. But I don't know so much that I have associated that specifically with Judaism, except except for two ways. Number one, to kun olam, that we are to be active. Um, three ways, actually. <clears throat> that, number one. <clears throat> number two, one of the things that Judaism and Islam have in common that is different than Christianity is that our relationship to God is inextricably bound with our relationship to our people. Mm-hmm. Christianity, it's a very personal relationship with God. For Islam and Judaism, it's our people. It's the history of our people is part of all this. And I think that that brings up a lot for Jews about Israel. Because I remember after 9-11, people were always saying, where, where, are the good, where are the good Muslims? Why aren't they speaking up? Well, as a Jew, I understood why they weren't. Because it's always difficult for us to criticize each other because we're afraid that it will uh Will it will contribute to anti-Semitism? Mm-hmm. So on that immediate level, political it has is affected me, but also not Jewish, but just specifically spiritual. You see it in Gandhi. You see it in Dr. King. I agree with Gandhi when he said, "Anyone who thinks religion doesn't have anything to do with politics doesn't understand religion." Mm-hmm. To me, if whether it's Jesus saying love one another or in Judaism to love justice, to do mercy, to walk humbly with your God, the point is to not just take those words as just words. Do something about them. And if you don't do <clears throat> something about them, and I think particularly as Jews, given our history, we know it's in ourselves. We know what happens when that's not happening. And I think to be a Jew is to, in the modern world, and I'm sure you feel it, I don't know any Jew who doesn't, um, this is a particularly troubling time. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up thinking, oh, that's all in the past, and we're really grateful for the generations that fought that back, and Hitler was a terrible man, but everything's cool now. Everything's actually not cool now. Right. Global anti-Semitism is on the rise. <clears throat> so I, I think about these things a lot. Most Jews I know do. You mentioned the anti-Semitism is on the rise. You also said that it's kind of hard for Jews to criticize each other because we're afraid it in might. public, in public, in public, not in private. I think in private, <laughs> every Jew I know is what the fuck is he doing? You know, we understand that, but publicly, it's 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 gnarly, it's complicated. 
Well, yeah, and podcasting is a fun medium because it feels like it's in private, but it's actually in public. So maybe you will feel open to sharing some of your views on some of those issues that are hard to talk about with other Jews. For example, a lot of our listeners are concerned with Israel, with the treatment of Palestinians in particular, and other religious minorities and sexual minorities. You know, my father used to always say, um, they might not be after us now. But make sure you align with whoever they are after, because they could always get back around to us. It should be central, a core tenet of Judaism, to always be on the side of those who are unjustly treated, because we have been unjustly treated. You are a stranger in the land of Egypt. Always be good to the stranger. We are taught to always be there for those who are um, disadvantaged. So, of course, any Jew with a conscience is going, uh, the Palestinians, uh, um, and there is a terrible um, look. Everybody knows it now. It's not like it's we don't know it. There's a moral fault line there. Mm-hmm. There's a real problem there, and everybody knows it. Having said that, I have a love of Israel. I've been to Israel quite a few times. You know, right now it's so complicated because they've got the most far right wing governor government right now mm-hmm. that they've ever had. <clears throat> Two hundred fifty thousand people were on the street in uh, Tel Aviv the other day uh, because of Netanyahu's such a far right swing that even a former head of Mossad said he can't go along. You have soldiers who are saying we won't go into training. So, you know, anything could happen there right now. And in addition to that, of course, you have not only the problem, the moral problem, the moral problem with the settlements, with the occupation and so forth, and the fact that this far right government is actually taking it to even greater extremes. So, It's a tortured moment. If you were to become president or get the nomination for the Democratic Party, what do you think some of the concrete asks you would make of Israel or what sort of positions do you think you would take? The United States, United States should stand for democratic values, democratic humanitarian values, both home and abroad. That's what we should stand for. Uh, Our uh, Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. We've already gotten not just men, also women, not just black, also um, uh, not just white, also black, not just straight, also gay. And it's also not just Americans. And it's not just our allies. So the United States should stand with robust support for both the security and the uh, human rights of both Israelis and Palestinians. The $3.8 billion, you know, everybody concentrates so much on that $3.8 billion. The $3.8 billion is already codified into law through 2008. But we should use that uh, as leverage. Uh, it is absolutely righteous, you know, whether it's Betty McCallum's bill, uh, that none of our money could be used that has anything to do with de- uh, detention of children. There are all kinds of ways that we could and should use our funding uh, as leverage, what we are absolutely uh, against that money being used for. And there are transgressions, human rights transgressions that uh, the United States should stand robustly against. Yeah, financial leverage is definitely one of the levers of power America at a federal level has. In a similar vein, I wanted to ask you about Ukraine. We have a war going on that was precipitated by an unjust invasion of Russia into a territory. America has been funding Ukrainians, sending them weapons and other various financial support. War has been going on for about a year now. There's been a lot of death and destruction. What do you think our policy towards Ukraine should be? Should we continue on this course? Should we be advocating for peace talks? Well, obviously, the ultimate end of this conflict needs to be a negotiated settlement, a diplomatic negotiated settlement. 
that's the only ultimate end to this. And uh, I don't know if you saw the video of Naftali Bennett talking about how he had originally had uh, talks with Putin. Clearly, the, Ameri- the Americans don't have exactly clean hands when you look at the history of all this, uh, our participation with NATO, uh, the Aegis missiles in Poland, and so forth. At the same time, if you're anti-imperialist, you have to be anti-imperialist. To me, you know, I'm, I'm against imperialism, I'm against American imperialism, I'm against Russian imperialism. And nothing that the United States has done to me justifies this invasion by this awful dictator. Now, we're living in a moment which is very interesting because China, you know, Xi, has met with Putin. Theoretically, he's going to be presenting these principles to uh, Zelensky as well. So there might be an opening coming up very, very soon, depending on how on how Zelensky reacts to those principles. You know, we're living in a multipolar world right now. The United States is not the only broker out there. And if China can bring something to the table, which begins peace negotiations, then of course, we should all support that. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit to a topic that's really important to me as a trans person. You know, I've heard you speak in ways before about how it seems like various issues like the lack of faith in our electoral system and the economic disparities and things like that are tied not only to practical legal considerations, but also to the sort of spiritual and emotional health of the nation and of us as its individual constituents. And there's this huge backlash or this huge attack on the rights of the trans community that's occurring across the nation and and in certain senses across the globe right now. And I'm curious, one, what you make of that in general, but two, do you have any ideas or sense about why this is becoming such a phenomenon now? And what are the origins of this conflict that's arising within our own communities? I'm very concerned about it. I think we should all be very concerned about it. I'll be speaking at East Tennessee Uh, State University at the end of this month at a protest there, the Tennessee legislature has passed a bill that will outlaw drag shows. You know, as Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Once again, going back to the the Jewish concept also, they've come after us. If they're not coming after us today, it doesn't mean they won't come after us tomorrow. So make sure you're there for whoever they're coming after. It is an old trick uh, of um, any neo-fascist authoritarian uh, trend to find the scapegoats. And, you know, by the way, you know, Hitler, when you look at Kristallnacht, it wasn't just coming after the, after the um, Jews. The, the gay people and gypsies were part of that original wave of attack. Um, so this is pretty ancient stuff, <clears throat> the coupling of homophobia with any other profound oppression and injustice. There are countries all over the world uh, today where a gay person would be thrown off the top of a building. I mean, it's uh, not like it's some ancient virus that is gone from the bloodstream of humanity. Right now, there is an active threat. I was in New Hampshire a couple weeks ago. There's actually a bill suggesting that trans children would have to sit separately from the other kids at school. But listen, in, in South, uh, South Carolina right now, there are 21 uh, lawmakers who have signed a bill to make abortion punishable by death to the mother. So this is a neo-fascist uh, threat that has a pretty wide net right now. On one hand, we have to stand for whomever is a target, whomever is threatened, and in this case, transgender people are. But we also have to recognize, I think, the larger threat to democratic freedoms overall. Yeah, I really appreciated what you said about the repetitious nature of this kind of targeting of a scapegoat and how it sort of mirrors something that was happening in Germany. It's interesting for me to think about my own 
gender and sexuality feels inherently Jewish because I have learned of so many ways that trans people have permeated Jewish history and queer people have permeated Jewish history. And to see myself not only as a trans and queer person today, but as a trans and queer Jew in a long lineage of trans and queer Jews. I didn't even know that. Can you tell me who they were? Yeah, I would love to. So one of the sort of fundamental things that people like to talk about is a few of the midrashes, a few of the interpretations of Torah that reveal that the rabbis had much more expansive thoughts about gender and sexuality than we give them credit for. So for instance, that's interesting. One of the most famous is a drash from Bereshit Rabbah about Adam, the first man. And rabbis believe that Adam was created a genderless single being at first that was eventually split into two beings. And so Adam was neither man nor woman. Later, we read that the rabbis believe that Abraham and Sarah were in a category called tumtum, that they had no external sex characteristics until later in life. Wow. And these are just permeated throughout the Torah. And then we get into things like Talmud, where we have characters like Rabbi Yochanan, one of the most famous Talmudic rabbis, has this incredibly homoerotic narrative with his study partner, his Chavruta, Reish Lakish, where when they meet, Reish Lakish sees Rabbi Yochanan in the river and is so compelled by Rabbi Yochanan's beauty that he goes and leaps into the river. And the first thing he says is, your beauty is for women. And yeah, I know. Well, there you have it. There you really do have it. And so the queerness and transness really just permeates throughout the tradition in a way that, you know, hopefully that we're a part of recovering and bringing back to life right now. And yeah, this whole tangent I've gone on doesn't really have a question for you at the end of it, but just that I really appreciated the connections you were drawing because as much as I also see them in that negative sense of being sort of doubly a target. I also experience them in a positive sense of being sort of doubly blessed. That's beautiful. We should all feel that we can celebrate the creation of God that is who we are. Mm-hmm. There may be a question I can twist out of what you just said, Hava. Oh, great. On the pod, we love exploring these homoerotic twists and turns and queer twists and turns that are present in the ancient literature that in some ways defy our expectations of things that are old and in the past. How do I twist that into a question? Let's see. <laughs> That's just a statement, Michael. What's it like to date while you're on a campaign, I guess? That's a oh, question. Oh, no. Well, I'm not dating, actually. Um, so interesting, because when I, in my younger years, I always looked at romantic relationships as, I love you, honey, but I can't, you know, this would keep me from being able, you know, there's a certain kind of commitment to you would keep me from being able to uh, have the career that I have. Mm-hmm. But with this political situation, it's kind of the opposite. It's uh, kind of hard to do alone. You know, there's nobody to sort of yell it out with at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. It's a very stressful thing. Well, let me ask then, continuing more into matters of spirituality. And and maybe you've said this somewhere, and I just unfortunately have missed it. But you know, you spent a great portion of your life primarily working in the fields of spirituality, while also doing some activist work. What inspired you to transition that into a national political stage? And in what way is that a spiritual project? 
When I began lecturing on A Course in Miracles, I was in Los Angeles. And shortly after I began, within a year or two, the AIDS crisis burst onto the scene. So my work was inextricably tied up with deep human suffering and hardship from the very beginning. And that, it was a privilege actually, and still is, to be invited into people's lives at their darkest hours. And, you know, there used to be a joke, nobody calls Marianne because things are going well. So I was uh, often there when the test results came back and it was cancer, or I just found out my child is addicted to heroin, or my spouse is leaving and I didn't expect it, or whatever. But something began to happen towards the late 1980s, early 2000s, which makes sense historically because it was really it took 20 years for the real horror of Reaganomics to take hold in the lives of millions and millions of people. I began to see how many people's lives were in deep despair, but it wasn't because of those proverbial you know, acts of God it could happen to anyone. They were in despair because of bad public policy because they didn't have health care, because they couldn't send their kids to college, because they couldn't live on one job, and so forth and so forth. So I, I'm old enough to have remembered a time when in the 1970s, the average American worker could afford a house, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, could afford one parent to stay home with the kids, could afford to send their kids to college. And I began to go, wait, what happened? I thought all you had to do was be a good Democrat, give money to Democrats if you had it, support Democratic candidates, and more than not, the Democratic Party would, you know, we'd be okay. And I began mm-hmm. to say, no, 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 the entire system has now become a system of legalized bribery. Yeah, the Democrats are better than the Republicans. But in ways that became, and should be to people, intolerable, they too, while they are working to help people survive the deep injustices that are now baked into the cake, they're unwilling to challenge the underlying corporate forces that make the return of that suffering always inevitable because those forces are giving them campaign donations too. So I began to realize this system, we need an intervention here. Just like you intervene with a drug addict, you intervene with an alcoholic. This is That system is not going to disrupt itself. I began, you know, I'm old enough, I've seen enough, been around enough, and I'm clear about how this country works. And this country now works in a way, and I have a visceral understanding of it because I've, I've been up close and personal with both sides of it. You know, I, I, I get it. So you have 20% of Americans who are living, um, you know, everything's pretty good. You know, you have 20% of Americans for whom the U.S. economy is working. And that 20% live on an enchanted economic island. It's mm-hmm. surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. And we've just decided to normalize it. Meanwhile, in Europe and any other advanced democracy, it is considered a moderate position to support universal health care, to support co- a tuition-free college, to support a free child care, to support family leave, to support paid sick uh, leave, to support a livable wage. So what's going on with that? What's going on with that is that people have been trained to expect too little. People have been trained in this country to limit their, their political imagination. So I'm, I'm, I'm someone who's I've had 40 years in a career where you walk into a system and you go, okay, what's really happening? And I looked at it and I see what's really happened. And I thought, this is so corrupt. This is really wrong. And the system is not going to disrupt itself. It's now baked into the cake. And people, too many young people don't even have a memory of when it was different. And people are just, people's lives are falling apart. Now, if you only talk about that from the outside, which I've done, I've written books, I've written Healing the Soul of America, I wrote, I've written Politics of Love, I've supported Kansas, I've done all that. But some, I, I thought, no, you know, no, you have to get in there and you have to say it from within the system to call the system on its malfeasance. 
I don't see any other way to do that. So of course they say that I'm unqualified because they are purporting that only the people whose careers have been ensconced in the system that drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified to lead us out of it. What those people, with a few exceptions, are qualified to do is to effectuate and perpetuate what is essentially an unjust system. My qualification is to disrupt it. I think to me, love is truth-telling. There is no love where you're not getting real. There is no love where you're not putting it out on the table. I've never, you know, this this image of me as woo-woo love, fuzzy love. It's just nobody who's actually heard me speak at my lectures or read my books thinks I've ever been about woo-woo kooky love. It's just part of the narrative manufactured by those who don't want my voice in the in the game. It's really easy for me to agree with your sense that the malfeasance is baked into the system because that's been my, you know, my whole experience of my whole life. But what I do wonder is because the electoral system is part of that system that it's baked into and there are so many people like myself who feel like there's no way that elections which are a part of the system can effectively disrupt the system itself. What would you say to people who have lost faith in the process and in the system itself? You can't disrupt the system by not getting into it. I mean, I'm sorry. It's got to be a both-end strategy. There are NGO issues. There are labor issues. There are all kinds of communication, independent media, et cetera, which have to be part of the work. But leaving electoral politics out of it is just leaving. They're delighted by that. Because that's what they own. They own the levers of power. So they don't have a problem with your shouting and screaming. What they have a problem with is if you decide to actually run for office. So, you know, let's not forget, we know what they did to Bernie Sanders. And hey, I know what they did to me. I know what they are doing to me. But let's not forget, Bernie Sanders came within striking distance of the presidency. I agree with something that I heard Jen Uker say the other day. He said, somebody's going to get through. And that's how I see it. Somebody's going to get through. Um, so we just have to keep pushing. Now, I'm running, so for me, that would be convenient, given that I'm the only <laughs> one saying these things. But if it's not me, you'll be pushed a little bit closer. This country elected Franklin Roosevelt four times. So when I look at the American people that I experience when I'm out on the campaign trail, I can tell you the problem is not with the people. The problem is not with the American people. The consciousness of the American people, you can look at poll after poll, a little bit left of center, and very open when you start talking about how, hey, they have this in every other advanced democracy, only in the United States among advanced democracies, do we have one in four uh, people uh, living with medical debt? Do we have 18 million people who cannot afford to uh, fulfill their prescriptions? Do we have 68,000 people who are dying every year because they don't have health care? Only in the United States among advanced democracies. So we have to find a way to get in there and give people an opportunity to vote for someone who actually says that. I know that the system is very institutionally resistant, resistant to that happening, but now it's in the hands of the people. You know, every time somebody sends my campaign $5, you know what I'm saying? But this idea, no, it can't happen. I mean, the left has to decide whether it really wants power in this country. Because to me, it's all of the above. You support labor and you support independent media and you support the NGOs and you just support the candidates. All of the above. It's a whole systems breakdown and we need a whole systems response. I like what you said about trying to push. If it's not you, it's going to be someone else yeah. in the future. But we should support anybody who's doing the pushing. So in your current effort to push, right now you're an underdog. If you don't get the Democratic nomination, do you think you would hold back on endorsing Biden or would you try to push him for certain concessions before you would endorse him? I'm not even going there. I think uh, 
I'm not even going there. I think when uh, you look back at the Republican debate where they asked Trump, if you do not get the nomination, will you support the Republican? Do you remember what he said? I don't recall. I don't recall. I do. He said, it depends on how you guys treat me. (laughs) Which I think is different from what Bernie said. That's exactly right. In retrospect, Trump gave a pretty decent answer. So, you know, political parties are not even mentioned in the Constitution. And George Washington warned us about them in his farewell address. He said they would form factions of men who were more concerned with their party than with their country. John Adams said he thought they were the greatest threat to democracy. This idea that, you know, it's it's kind of like 100 years ago, there's some men sitting around a table smoking a cigar saying he will be our candidate. What is that? What is that? You know, I grew up at a time when Eugene McCarthy primaried LBJ and Bobby Kennedy primaried LBJ and Teddy Kennedy primaried Carter. Now, some people say, yeah, and they lost. Well, Bobby Kennedy died. And also, Teddy Kennedy wasn't the only reason Carter lost. You know, Ronald Reagan did have something to do with that. And either way, it shouldn't be there as to decide. You know, the Democrats have a codependent relationship with the DNC that the Republicans don't have with the RNC. It just kills me to see more independent thinking, kills me to see more audacity on the other side. You know, yeah. uh, well, Democrats say it have to be this way. We're going to go with this way. Can anybody have an independent thought about what we really think would beat the Republicans in 2024? Because I don't think that a message that the economy is doing well is going to beat the Republicans in 2024, given that for uh, 80% of the American people, that is not their visceral experience. It should be the people who decide. The people should hear me and the people should hear Biden and the people should hear anybody else who's running and there should be debates and then the people should decide. That's not some, somebody saying that, namely myself, is not trying to mess with democracy. It's a stand for democracy. Speaking of whether the left really wants power and and the audacity required for moments like these, uh, I think we can all agree that there's been a, a huge secularization of the left in the West over the past few decades. I'm curious, one, what you think has been the fuel for that secularization and what could revive the idea of a religious left? I mean, as a religious leftist, it's like, um, you know, so, kind of silly to be asking that question, but I think no, it still stands. It, it, it's, it's so significant because in my lifetime, during the 1960s, during the during the uh, anti-war movement, there was the Berrigan brothers. There was Weem Sloan Coffin at Yale. Bobby Kennedy said it's a contest for the soul of America. Martin Luther King talking about an, it's time for a new dimension of love to be injected into the veins of human civilization. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the left went into this overly secularized, it's a little bit of a neo-Marxist place, that they're the first ones to put down in a conversation. You know, when I've seen people on the left, you know, buying into this narrative, you're kooky, if you mention it, jeez, what are we talking about here? Traditionally in America, there has been issues of public morality and private morality. Conservatives have been more interested in issues of public morality Uh, excuse me, private morality. But traditionally, the left was more interested in issues of public morality. Economic justice is a moral issue. Invading a country that didn't even do anything to you is a moral issue. Taking care of the planet so that your children and children's children can live here should be seen as a moral issue. But this way that um, the left had over the last decades, few decades of acting like it's too cool, you know, we're too cool to use the M word. Well, great, because if you don't if you don't give people a legitimate conversation about a moral vision, then somebody with an ersatz version of one will just stride on in. And that's exactly what's happened. So if you're a male minister 
you get some respect, but uh, anybody, you know, who is speaking from a larger moral perspective who doesn't represent what they see to be a denominational constituency is peripheralized in ways that I find it's disappointing. And it's not just disappointing, but I'm a lefty and I'm insulted by it. So I can't even imagine what it's like to be a conservative and how they would feel the condescension, the, the, the arrogance, the smugness towards people of faith. When you've got 90% of Americans who say they believe in God, oh, smart guys, whatever geniuses came up with that, really smart, as in not. I think it's interesting. It feels like to me as someone whose primary experience of Judaism has been a leftist Judaism, thank God. I feel like the people on the left have been hungering for something that they see people with religious convictions have, which is that faith can be an enormous source of fuel and energy in work for justice. I think there are a lot of people who grew up in the more secular experience of the left who are sort of looking around and saying not only might this secularization not be a good strategy, but it also like is leaving me burnt out at the end of the day because my political work isn't connected to something that gives me that sort of long-term ongoing fuel. Absolutely. And that's actually why I chose to delve really deeply into Judaism as an adult is because I felt that lack in myself. And so I actually come away quite hopeful as for like what awaits the religiousness of the left in the future. I feel like there's a lot of really beautiful stuff percolating out there. I don't know if you've read my books, uh, Healing the Soul of America or Politics of Love, but both of them are about the intersection of spirituality and politics. When you look at the uh, historical sweep of social justice movements in the United States, the abolitionist movement came from religious circles, a lot of the early evangelical churches in New Hampshire and so forth. The um, women's suffrage movement, a lot of the leaders of women's suffrage were Quakers. And that's where a lot of that emerged from. And of course, Dr. King was a Baptist preacher. So this idea that any social, great social justice movements of the United States have ever not arisen from deep spiritual uh, conviction, because it is a spiritual conviction. Once again, uh, justice, justice, thou shalt pursue. You know, and 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 the the di- basic dictates of the of the Declaration of Independence that God created all men equal. It doesn't say all men were made equal. It says all men were created equal. And then God gave us an alienable right. So in our mission statement, it is a spiritual as well as a political document. So I agree with everything that you said, that when you have no sense of a, of a spiritual universe, um, it's very difficult to find a deeper sense of identity beyond your own flesh and blood. It's harder to find a deeper sense of overriding meaning beyond just trying to survive or make it in a consumer society. And I think everybody recognizes now that people's lives are falling apart in this mechanistic, material, overly materialized, overly secularized universe. I want to tell you one story that you might find interesting. After COVID, the first time I gave a talk, you know, it's been, in my career, there's been a lot of, in the spiritual audiences, I really love Marianne, I just wish she wouldn't talk about politics. (laughs) And then in the political audience, you know, she has some good ideas, but I wish she wouldn't talk about this spiritual stuff, right? So it's like I didn't have a home anywhere because everybody was like, why do you have to do that other stuff? Well, it was the first talk after the COVID, and I had gone down to South by Southwest. I was giving a talk at one of the South by Southwest events in Austin, Texas. And I thought, well, there's a coffee shop down there that they have a 
outdoor area, and I think I'll see, you know, coffee house and see what they think about my giving a talk there tonight. And they said, sure, we can have a couple hundred people outside on the patio. So I just put it on my Facebook page, I guess, on my Twitter or something saying I will be speaking tonight. And then I started getting worried. Because I thought, well, I've run for president now, and who's going to come? Is it going to be my spiritual audience, or is it going to be my political audience? You know, and is it going to be, you know, what's, how's this going to play? Because mm-hmm. I hadn't really talked since my since my um, campaign. So I go there that night, and I noticed something interesting, which was these more spiritual, transformational, higher consciousness, metaphysical types would seem to be on one side of the patio, and the people with this like political left wing activists, they were on the other side. And once again, I'm wondering how this is going to play. So I give a talk and then I say, okay, let's have questions and answers. And people just lined up. And I saw something so interesting. I saw something so interesting. When the spirit, the people were asking personal questions about personal transformational issues, I didn't see the political people like crossing their arms, like rolling their eyes. I saw the political people leaning in because those questions were just as relevant to them. And when people were asking the political questions, I saw the higher consciousness transformational crowd leaning in from this place of, we know we have to go there now. We know we've been sitting this out and I'm ready to be educated. And that was really amazing to me. And now when I talk to Gen Z audiences, man, they're already there because they're not even 20th century people. And a lot of them were raised by mothers who read books, the kind of which I write. Mm -hmm. Um, America is ready for an integration, I think, of things that for a while were considered just not cool enough by the left and not relevant by the spiritual types. I think we're living in a new moment of possibility, and I feel it when I'm out there. That's interesting to hear you say how the spiritual folks who are inclined towards that lean into the political when they hear it, and the opposite happens for the political leaning folks. I've seen that in my own life. I'm probably more of a political leaning person who, when I ask questions about where those political beliefs come from, they ultimately boil down to egalitarianism and then why am I so egalitarian? Why why does that resonate with me? And then I have to start getting into some crazy metaphysics like, oh, we're all of one substance. My perception of you as a you and me as a me is an illusion. So like I approach it from that side. Other people, you know, go up from that more metaphysical side up to the politics. How did you approach it? Did you start off as more of a political person and kind of discovered spirituality? No, I was raised in a very left-wing, politically aware home. But I took my first philosophy class when I was 14. And so I felt my greatest gift and my greatest uh, contribution would be to give whatever I could within that realm. It was not that I wasn't interested in politics. It wasn't that I didn't participate or support candidates, but I felt that my work with The Course in Miracles was really working on the level of cause. It's just that as history progressed for the reasons I said earlier, I saw that so much of the despair that people were experiencing was despair due to systemic issues. You know, I I started nonprofits. You mentioned that before. No amount of private charity can compensate for a basic lack of social justice. And so I saw that people were falling apart. And then, you know, the system says, oh, go to therapy or get your clergy to help you. You know, and I, no, 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 no. They they shouldn't be in such despair to begin with. And also, when I when I did historical, you know, study for when I was writing a book called Healing the Soul of America, that's when I learned as much as I did about Gandhi because I I thought, oh, I want to talk about spirituality and politics. Then when I read Gandhi and I read King, I went, this is not a wheel that has to be reinvented. This has already mm-hmm. been done. These principles already exist. You know, Gandhi said that the love inside us 
there is a power inside us that can heal not only all personal relationships, but all political, economic, and social relationships as well. Wow. Well, as we're slowly reaching the close of our time together, I want to ask as a final question, just if there's any message you want to leave our listeners with. We've entered the 21st century, and it's a very different mindset than the 20th, just as the 20th was a very different mindset than the 19th. The mindset of the 20th century was very mechanistic, Newtonian paradigm, the idea that the world is a big machine, and if you want to fix the machine, just tweak some piece of it. This century, we are already well into it, and I think everybody can see that the mindset of the 20th century did not only not fix everything, but created and exacerbated some problems that were already there. This century is far more whole person, and whole person means your inner life matters as much as your outer, and that your inner life is the, the level of cause. Your being precedes your doing. There was a British physicist named James Jeans who said that it turns out the world is not one big machine, it's one big thought. So I think the question on the table for all of us should be a deeper inquiry, not only into what went wrong outside, but also what went wrong inside, that we should find ourselves where we are, that we should find ourselves so close to the cliff. Now, I think that there are absolutely valid arguments to be made that the injustices, the external injustices have contributed to the internal breakdown. And I agree with that, or I wouldn't be running for president. But at the same time, we've got to see it as a both and. We've got to heal our hearts and we've got to change our policies. It can't be one or the other. And then beyond that, just if anyone is interested in uh, my campaign, I would love for people to go to Marianne 2024 and support me in any way that they feel moved to do so. I think this primary is important. I think that uh, my having a, a chance to submit to the American people an agenda which is different than uh, the president's, both as a way to defeat the Republicans in 2024, but also as a way to repair this country. I hope that people will take a serious look at it. And uh, if they do support, throw in whatever that $5, $10, whatever it is, uh, and help the campaign flourish. I would appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And to all our listeners, Shavua Tov. Shavua Tov. Thank you so much. God bless you both.